Amen. Well, church, you can go and grab your Bibles. If you would, and open up with me to the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 40 together today. Um, if, if you're visiting with us this morning, um, our pattern over the last couple years has been that in between our uh, longer book studies, we have jumped into the Psalms. And we've been taking the Psalms in little bite-sized portions at a time. So we'll do six or eight Psalms at a time. And so we're in Psalm 40 today. And let's just again go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help on this part of our service. Father, we do come to you like so many of our songs have expressed this morning. We come looking to you expectantly. We come trusting in you. And Lord, we come waiting for you. We come ultimately, like we sang in that last verse, we come waiting for the day when our faith is going to be made sight and the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. We wait for that day to come. And Lord, in between now and then, we regularly wait for you. We hold on to your promises. We trust in your goodness. We cling to you even in our trials. And Lord, I pray that you would work through your word this morning to encourage those who are in the midst of that kind of waiting. So, uh, Lord, encourage the hearts of your people through your word this morning. That's our prayer, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I heard a pastor say one time that, uh, that he thinks that the older a person gets in the Christian life, the more they tend to value the Psalms. And he said that about uh, an occasion in his life when he had gone into a church and he had started preaching through the Psalms. And he said that as he preached through the Psalms, it seemed like the older people in the church loved it as he went through the Psalms, but the younger people in the church, he said, didn't seem to like it quite as much. And he said he thinks that's because the older you get, the more experiences you have in life, and the more the Psalms resonate with you. Well, we've talked before about the fact that there are Psalms written from virtually every kind of emotional experience that you can imagine. There are psalms written out of joy and psalms written out of tragedy. There are psalms written out of gratitude and psalms written out of despair. There are psalms written during times of disaster and psalms written during times of abject loneliness and psalms written when the psalmist is wrestling with unbelief. And it's like the longer you live, the more of those experiences you have. So you finally reach the point where it's like all of the psalms fit You've experienced all of the different things that you find the psalmist talking about. It's one of the things I mention just about every time is the psalms are a gift to us because the psalms give voice to our prayers. The psalms show us how to pour out our hearts to God from every situation that you can imagine. So if you're here and you're struggling with sin in your life and you're trying to figure out how to wrestle with it before God, the psalms show you how to do that. If you're going through a trial in your life and you're not sure if it's ever going to end and you're wondering if God even hears you when you cry out to Him, the Psalms show you how to pray in moments like that. Listen to David Pallison's description of the Psalms. He said, The Psalms have always been favorites of God's people because they express honest human experience and emotion in the context of faith. In the Psalms... You meet God where you are. I like that quote. In the Psalms, you meet God. You learn to commune with God. You learn to pray to God wherever you are. And the Psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning will probably be familiar to most of you. Psalm 40 is that Psalm that starts with David talking about being in this miry pit 
And the Lord hears his cry and plucks him out of the pit and sets his feet on solid ground. But most of the time when Psalm 40 is read, that's the only part of it that's read. So if you're, if you're familiar with Psalm 40, it will likely be just the first three or five verses of this psalm that you've heard read or that you have heard preached on. But the interesting thing is that the longer the psalm goes, the more the tone of it changes. So if you just read the first three verses of Psalm 40, you would think it is purely a psalm of celebration. David is thanking God for the deliverance that he's provided in his life. But as you keep reading, this psalm of celebration actually turns into a psalm of lament. And what makes it interesting is it goes in the opposite direction of most psalms. So there are other psalms that combine lament and thanksgiving. But usually it starts with the lament. It starts with the psalmist in agony and he pours his heart out to God and God brings some kind of resolution. And after the lament, it then ends with thanksgiving. But Psalm 40 actually works in the opposite direction. It begins with the thanksgiving and then moves into lament. And the reason for that, we'll see in just a second, is that David is actually writing this psalm in the middle of a deep trial. Just so you see that. If your Bible's already open to Psalm 40, look down at it. Notice how David describes his current situation. Go down to verse 11. David says, Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable, this is where he is in the moment, for innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. They're more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. So do you see where David is in the moment? David is actually in this part where he says his evils, the evils in his life, are more numerous than the hairs on his head. He is sinking in despair and he's swamped by his iniquities. And it's in the middle of that that you get the first three verses of this psalm. So in the middle of this trial, David begins the psalm by recounting this episode when God had delivered him in the past. Now think about why he's doing that. Why in the middle of this trial does David begin by reminding himself of how God had rescued him from this prior pit that he had found himself in? You see what David's doing, right? David is doing this to encourage his soul to keep trusting in the Lord in the moment. So so one of the most helpful things you and I can do in our lives when we find ourselves in a trial facing some deep pit is to recount the episodes of God's faithfulness from prior in our lives. It's, it's those memories of God's faithfulness before that encourage us to keep trusting in the Lord and to keep praising the Lord in the current trial. Okay, so that's the, the layout of this psalm. So with all of that said, let's just read it together. We're going to read it in its entirety. So Psalm 40, beginning in verse 1 And try to get the the flow of it, how it transfers, how it changes from celebration to lament as it moves. Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. 
He also brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust, and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside the lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done. And your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they're more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. And then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I've not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I've declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. They're more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. We're going to look at this in three simple parts. Number one, I want to see David's testimony of God's faithfulness. David's testimony of God's faithfulness. Notice he begins verse one. I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, you know, the Psalms weren't just put here randomly. They're, they're not put here in chronological order. They're not put here by length. The Psalms are grouped intentionally. And so what you get in the Psalms is many of the Psalms are grouped together according to a particular theme. And the theme that holds this group of Psalms together is this idea of waiting on the Lord. So if you go back to Psalm 37, you might remember from a few weeks back, Psalm 37 is a wisdom psalm. It's where David tells us how to live a wise life in the middle of such a messed up world. So what's one of the things we need to do if we're going to live a life of wisdom? Look back at Psalm 37, verse 7. Psalm 37, 7, he says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Go down to verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Go down to, toward the end of it, verse 34. 
Wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. Do you see how so much of this psalm is calling us to wait on the Lord? We're in a world that is messed up. It's upside down. Things don't always make sense. And there's so many times when you won't understand what God's up to. And so David is saying one of the key things we have to learn to do is wait on God. Persevere in trusting him. Okay, that's the general point of Psalm 37. Well, Psalm 38 and Psalm 39 then give us two particular circumstances where we'll need to wait on the Lord. So Psalm 38 is when David is feeling the heavy hand of God's discipline. God is disciplining David. He's experiencing the consequences for his sin. And David begins to pour out his heart in confession to God as he waits for God to lift the discipline. And then Psalm 39 is about waiting on the Lord during trials where David is facing some severe difficulty. And just look at Psalm 39 again so you see this. Verse 7. This is the turning point. This is the fulcrum of the psalm. Psalm 37, verse 7. David says, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. David is saying, What do I wait for? Lord, I wait on you. So here's what I want you to get. For the last three plus psalms, there's been, been this steady drumbeat of wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. Well, now you come to Psalm 40 and it's like there's finally resolution to the waiting. David begins Psalm 40 by saying, I waited and the Lord heard me. So he's letting us know that those who wait on the Lord, God hears. Those who wait on the Lord, God intervenes. So these first three verses are David's testimony of God's faithfulness in the waiting. And I can't emphasize, I can't emphasize how strongly the waiting is being held up here. It's translated in our versions, I waited patiently, but the literal wording is waiting, I waited on the Lord. Waiting, I waited. He just uses two different words for waiting. He uses one word that means endurance, like you have to hang in there waiting on the Lord. And he, he uses another word that has to do with expectation. Like, we're, we're not hopeless in our waiting, we're hope-filled in our waiting. Now, why do you get so much of this? We, we read Psalm 62 earlier. Why do you get so much of this in the Bible where we're called to wait on the Lord? What does that imply? Isn't one of the big implications in that that God rarely follows our schedules. If you haven't figured this out yet, God feels no obligation to meet your deadlines. God feels no obligation to follow our schedules. And so one of the things that the Bible comes to us over and over again to say is, a big part of faith is learning to wait. A big part of faith is just clinging to the Lord in the middle of your questions. It's clinging to the Lord in the middle of the trial. It's clinging to the Lord before the answer ever comes. So all of these calls to wait on the Lord are meant to fortify us against unbelief when we go through those seasons of delay. Listen, you're going to go through seasons of delay in the Christian life. You're going to go through seasons where there is something you want that is good. There's something you're praying for that seems right. There's something you're wrestling with that seems like it would be God honoring for you to get out of and you're not getting any resolution. And so over and over, the Bible's call is going to be we have to learn in the middle of that to wait 
on the Lord. David says, waiting, I waited on the Lord. But he says that in this, he cried out, and how does God respond? He says in verse 1, he inclined to me. It's, it's really the idea of God stooping down. It's like David cried out, and God cups his ear, and he leans over so that he can hear David's cry for help. And did you notice as we read those first three verses earlier, who, who is, uh, who's the actor in all of the verbs that are given here? Did you notice how God is the actor and David is the one being acted upon? God inclined his ear. God heard David's cry. God plumped David up out of the pit. God set David's feet on the rock. God established David's steps. God put a new song in David's heart. Who's the one doing all of this? God is. David didn't climb his way out of this pit. God intervened and rescued him from the pit. And this, this whole thing is such a, there's lots of things you could apply it to, but it is such a wonderful picture of salvation. If you're a Christian, this is where you were. And if you're not, this is where you are. Our, our life could be described as we were in the pit. We, we were in the miry clay. Now, the sad part is we, we sang it earlier. Um, I once was lost in darkest night and thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. The sad part is not... Not only were we stuck in the muck and mire of our sin, but there was part of us back then that actually loved it. We were clinging to the very sin that was killing us. When God reached down and he pulled us out of that. And David says, he set my feet on a rock. So David goes from absolute despair and absolute uncertainty to his feet being set. There's security now. And David says, and the Lord put a new song in my Mouth. I, I can't read Psalm 40. Those of you who have read the Pilgrim's Progress will relate to this. I can't read Psalm 40 without thinking of the picture that Bunyan paints in the early chapters of Pilgrim's Progress. Because he draws straight on this, this scene in those early chapters. Because there's that, there's that picture where Christian, the character in that book, is reading the Bible and he hears the message, flee from the wrath to come. And he suddenly feels this burden on his back. It's, burden, it's Bunyan's picture of the weight of his sin and his guilt. And so Christian, with the burden on his back and the call to flee from wrath, takes off running for the wicked gate. That's the, the picture of the gate of salvation. But do you remember what happens to him as he's running? He's running along, running for the wicked gate, and he falls into the slough of despond. He falls into this swamp and he's got such a heavy burden on his back that he can't get out of the bog. He is stuck in this muck and mire and he can't crawl his way out of it until finally Bunyan says that one comes along whose name is Help. And he reaches out and he grabs him by the hand and he pulls him out of the mire and he sets his feet on solid ground. That's Bunyan using Psalm 40 to describe what God has done in saving us. And it could be that you're here this morning, and maybe for the first time in your life in recent days, you have felt 
the burden that Bunyan describes. It's amazing that you and I have the ability, even though our sin debt is great, we have the ability to go through most of our life not even aware that the weight is there, as if we're running free. And it could be that God in his grace has opened your eyes so that you've begun to feel the weight of your sin. You're aware of the guilt of it and the shame of it and you're wrestling underneath of it and you know it's not good and you're struggling but it feels like you just can't crawl your way out of the bog. Well, what David is saying here, what Bunyan is painting, the picture he's painting in that book is that there is a Savior who will reach out his hand and who will pull you out of the mire. You can't climb your way out. But there's a Savior who can rescue you because He came down into the mire for us. He took on His own shoulders the weight and the burden of our sin so that we don't have to bear it. And in Him there's rescue. So the psalmist says, I was, and I don't want to pass by this without emphasizing how bad his condition was. Notice he calls it that he was in a horrible pit. You see that word horrible? The Hebrew word behind that really is the idea of, of like noisy or roaring. It's, it's a word that's often used in the Bible to describe waves that are crashing in. So maybe the best way to imagine it is imagine David saying it's like he is in a pit right at the coastline. And the tide has now started coming in. So this pit that was already pretty desperate now has water rushing into it. And he describes it as being in miry clay. It's like he's in quicksand. Have you ever been in the sort of mud where the more you move around, the deeper in it you sink? Probably the best picture of this in the Bible is, is the life of Jeremiah. You remember, uh, we'll actually get to this in Second Kings in a few weeks. But there's eventually a king who comes to the throne in Judah named King Zedekiah. And Zedekiah does not like the prophet Jeremiah. So that he allows a group of men to take Jeremiah and they throw him into this old abandoned well, this cistern. And Jeremiah describes it as if he's just left to die. He's just sinking down in this mud and this muck and this mire. He's never going to climb his way out. Well, that's the position that David is describing. And of course you understand, David's not describing a literal pit here. This is, this is a metaphor, and he's describing this circumstance in his life where it was like he was in a pit. And I think it's probably good for us that we're not told exactly what the pit was. It's sort of like uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians, where we're not told what it was. Was it physical? Was it a person? Was it spiritual? We're not told, which means that, that we can fit all sorts of our own thorns in the flesh in that story. I think it's the same thing here. There's all sorts of, there's all sorts of, pits that life leads you into. Isn't that right? There are all kinds of physical pits. You might, you might have already been, or the day might come when you get diagnosed with some sort of debilitating disease. Or you might have some sort of accident that leaves you crippled. It might be a relational pit. You, you might go through a time where your marriage is struggling and it is dry and barren. You might have a child who rebels that leaves you absolutely crushed. You might go through a season of infertility or it's been miscarriage after miscarriage or it's some sort of 
personal pit where you are wrestling through horrible depression and you don't, you can't even define it. It doesn't even make sense to you. Or for some reason, your financial situation comes crashing down in your life. There's every sort of pit you can imagine. And if you're young enough that, that you can't identify with any of that, get ready. It's coming. There's all sorts of pits. Well, David is in the middle or is describing a time when he was in the middle of one of those pits and he cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard him. That's, it's amazing when you think that David describes himself in the psalm as he was poor and needy. Why in the world would the Lord listen to somebody who is poor and needy? Now, we have a tendency to listen to people who are rich and powerful because they might can help us. But what in the world can I do for the Lord? And the answer is nothing. And yet, David says, he inclined his ear and he heard me and he plucked me out and he set my feet on solid ground and he didn't stop there. What happened once David was plucked out? He says... He put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Notice, David is pulled out of the pit. And where does his attention immediately turn? He's pulled out of the pit and his attention immediately turns to God. David wants to make much of the God who rescued him. He, his, his attention does not stay on the pit. I emphasize that just to make the point. Christian, make sure that this is true of you when you share the story of your conversion. Because it is not unusual to hear Christians talk about their salvation and they describe it almost as if they want us to admire the pit. They describe it almost as if they think we should be impressed by all the muck and mire that they had gotten themselves trapped in. But our goal as Christians is not to make much of the muck. It's to make much of the God who rescued us from the muck. And David says, this God who rescued me from the muck has put a new song in my mouth. The, the New Testament parallel to this would be Paul in Ephesians 5 saying that one of the results of being filled with the Spirit is what? We speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Or Colossians 3 that the result of the word of Christ dwelling in us richly is we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now I wonder, if you're the sort of Christian who says, you know what, I just don't sing. I wonder what you do with passages like this. Because did you notice how David doesn't say, he pulled me out of the pit and then he said, David, I really wish you would sing. David doesn't say, God pulled me out of the pit, and then he said, it would be great if you would start singing now. David says, he pulled me out of the pit, and he put a song in my mouth. Do you see how both of those are sovereign activities of God? The same God who sovereignly pulls you out of the pit, sovereignly puts a song in your mouth. So that hearts that have been transformed by God can't help but sing to God. God ensures it. He ensures that those who have been rescued by Him have a song that's been put in their hearts. And David says, they'll sing a new song. It's like every time we experience God's help, we have new reasons to sing. 
So every time we experience God's goodness in our lives, we have fresh calls to sing anew to God. This is why Christians will never stop writing new worship songs. We're not supposed to. We never run out of new, fresh things to say about God. And this is why Christians continue to sing old songs as if they were brand new. Because we, we don't have, we're not singing, it is well with my soul as if that were stale. Just since last time we sang, it is well with my soul, I've had new sins that condemn me before God. Since last time we sang, it is well with my soul, I could sing fresh my sins Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, just over the last three months since we sang that last, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. Or, or we, sang, we sang, Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer earlier. And there's that verse in it that says, My song when enemies surround me. My hope when tides of sorrow rise. My joy when trials are abounding. Uh, your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. Well, we haven't sung that song since September, I think. So over the last four months, have there been any occasion when trials have been abounding in your life? Over the last four months, have there been any times when, when it seemed like sorrows were rising in your life? Over the last four months, have there been any times when enemies were surrounding you and in those moments, you found God to be your hope? and your joy, and your song, and your refuge. Well, do you see how we sing that song with a fresh experience of God's grace? So we sing new songs, and we sing very old songs as if they were brand new. Because God's grace gives us fresh reasons to sing. So what would, what would the result be of all of this in David's life? Look back at your text. The end of verse 3, David says... Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. So David believed that when others saw what the Lord had done in hearing him and rescuing him, that, that it would result in other people fearing the Lord. Now, of course, you know when you see the fear of the Lord in the Bible, it's not talking about a, a cowering kind of fear. He even defines it here. This is a fear that leads to faith. Many will fear the Lord, David says, and will trust in the Lord. This is a fear that results in trusting in the Lord. So David believed that him being in this pit and him being rescued from this pit would be used by God to inspire others to trust in the Lord. Now, Christian, you've got to get what that means. that means. That means God's purpose for you in the pit is bigger than you. So could it be in your life that the Lord allows you into a pit, leaves you waiting in the pit, and then rescues you from the pit primarily because of what he wants to do in other people's lives through it? So David is convinced that because of what the Lord has done for him in this pit, it's going to inspire others to trust in the Lord. And before we move on to the next point, just to remind you of what David's giving us. Remember now, he is writing this while he is currently in a new pit. So in the moment David writes this, the mud is growing around his feet and knees. He's about thigh high in mud again. 
And yet in this mud, David looks back and he reminds us and he reminds himself of an earlier time when he had been in the pit. This was not David's first rodeo. There was an earlier time in his life when he was in the muck and the mire and he didn't know if he would ever get out and he cried out and he cried out and he cried out and the Lord heard him. And David is reminding himself of that here so that he doesn't lose heart in the moment. Again, Christian, one of the most helpful things you can do in your life when you find yourself in a trial like this is to remind yourself of God's faithfulness through all of your prior trials. May we never forget all of the, all of the pits that the Lord has plucked us out of. That's the first thing, David's memory of his testimony. Here's the second thing. Number two, I want to see David's encouragement to God's people. Look at verses four and five. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside the lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done. And your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. You see what's happening? David is taking his personal story, and now he is applying it to God's people at large. And David is saying, what God did for me... God will do for all those who trust him. What God did for David, God will do for all those who wait for him. Now he adds, if you trust in lies, if you follow the path of the proud, if you put your trust in yourself, you won't experience this help. But God blesses everyone who puts their trust in him. And verse 5 is, is a precious verse. David actually comes back to this same theme later in the psalm. David says, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works. David is saying God has done many wonderful works for his people. But then David continues that God has gracious thoughts toward his people. So it's like David is pointing back and he's pointing forward. And David is saying our lives as Christians are filled with God's wonderful works. God has helped us and acted toward us over and over again. Our past are filled with his wonderful works. So what is our future marked by? Our future is marked by God's gracious thoughts. Many are your wonderful works, and your gracious thoughts toward us, David says, can't even be numbered. That's, that's the idea of God's plans. So our past is filled with his wonderful works, and our future is designed and marked by God's gracious thoughts and good plans. So he's pointing forward and backward to make the point that God's plans for his people are good. That's such a sweet thing to read David saying, that if you even tried to recount to God all of his gracious thoughts toward his people, you couldn't even begin to number them. God's good thoughts toward his people are constant. Now, if God was angry with us, that would not be good news. Like a, like a new recruit going off to boot camp, you, you don't want to be in the thoughts of the drill sergeant. That's a bad thing if you're in his thoughts. But David is saying God's thoughts toward his people are favorable thoughts. God's thoughts toward his children are good. The same way, parents, the same way that your thoughts are always on your children, David is saying that God's thoughts are always on his children. The only difference is we don't have the power to act on all of our thoughts. 
God does. God has the power to enact his plans for his children. God traces out his plans according to his gracious thoughts. So how should we respond to that? This God who has rescued us from the muck. Well, here's the response, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you've opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. The point is that God... God doesn't want mere formalities. David uses all the different words, burnt offering and sacrifices, to sort of heap up all the different sacrifices that would be offered in the Old Testament temple. And David's point is, what God deserves from us after rescuing us from the pit is not a few religious rituals. Well, what does God deserve from us? Verse 7, then I said, behold, I come. So, so what does God deserve and demand for rescuing us from the pit. Not a few religious routines. He demands our lives. Behold, David says, I come. This is, this is the hymn saying, love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what David is saying here. That love so amazing demands a fully consecrated life. Th- these verses are the Old Testament version of Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's what David is saying. God doesn't desire us to throw a few offerings his way. He he desires for us to come. The language, in fact, that he uses here is pulled right out of 1 Samuel 15. Do you remember the story of Saul in 1 Samuel where Saul is willing to offer any sacrifice, but what is Saul not willing to do? He's not willing to actually obey God. So here's what Samuel says to Saul. Listen to 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Samuel said, listen to the reflections that we just read in Psalm 40. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Saul would put any animal out there on the altar. The problem is Saul wouldn't put himself on the altar. And David is saying that's what God requires. What God requires from us is, behold, I come. In fact, that middle line in verse 6, it seems out of place, but it's not, where David says, my ears you have opened. That word opened, it it could, could carry the idea of dug. God, you have dug out my ears. And there's two points he could be making. One... David could be referring back to the picture in uh, Exodus 21. There's, there's this scene in Exodus 21 of a slave. You remember in this day, because of financial circumstances, an Israelite might become the slave of another person, but it always had a time limit on it. At the end of six years, you would be set free. But what if at the end of that six years, you had a particularly kind, gracious master who took care of you and your family and it was a harsh world and you didn't know how you would survive. What if you wanted to stay with that master? Well, Exodus 21 says they would take your ear and they would put it against the doorpost of the master's home and they would take a peg and they would drive it through your earlobe. They would pierce the ear of the servant as the mark 
that he had voluntarily pledged himself to be a lifelong servant of that master. And that could be the point that David is making here, that they had pierced his ear. That David's ear had been pierced in a call of, he is giving himself as a lifelong servant, consecrated life to this God who had pulled him out of the pit. And it could be just the idea of, of dug out his ears, like his ears were clogged, they were deaf to God, he was dumb to God, he was blind to God, and God in grace had unclogged his spiritual ears. God had opened his ears so that now David heard God's voice, and he didn't just hear, he wanted to obey God, and he wanted to follow God. That's why you even get that little line in that verse about the scroll in verse 7. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It's written for me. Do you remember how it worked with Israel's kings? Every king in Israel was supposed to write out his own copy, make his own scroll where he copied out God's law to Israel's kings. He was supposed to keep it with him. He was supposed to regularly read it. And David is making a point here that the scroll that God has given him now is precious to him. So that he says in verse 8, he delighted to do God's word. So, so delight means he's not just going to do this now because he's obligated to do it. He's, David's not going, look, God rescued me. I guess this is what I have to do. What's David saying? David is saying, this God has rescued him and this God has changed David's heart. So there's a new hunger in David. There's a new yearning in David. It's not just an external law. God's law has been internalized. So that David now hungers to live a life that honors this God who saved him. Let me add one more thing to verses 6 through 8. If those verses sound familiar to you, it might be because the writer of Hebrews says that Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So it's in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews chapter 10. He quotes these verses and applies them to Jesus. He makes the point that if Jesus could have spoken to us from the manger, this is what Jesus would have said. He would have said, behold, sacrifices and offerings God doesn't desire. In other words, all of those goats and bulls and rams were not satiating God. All of those sacrifices in the Old Testament were reminders of sin, but they didn't actually atone for sin. So then what did God do? Verse 7, God said, Behold, I come. So that writer of Hebrews says that this is the Lord talking to us. None of the sacrifices and none of the offerings would do the trick. So our God came to us and he took on flesh. And, and Jesus is the only one who ever lived who can rightly say, I delighted to do God's law. Jesus is the only one who's ever done that perfectly, who loved the law of the Lord and kept the law of the Lord. So he's the only one who could actually bear the sins of his people in a way that all of those bulls and goats never could. So Psalm 46 through 8 ultimately points us forward to Jesus in verses 9 and 10. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. I've not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I've declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your loving kindness and truth from the great assembly. Do you, do you see what this keeps leading to for David? 
he feels compelled to tell others what the Lord has done for him. He's going to tell this good news in the great assembly. He even lists out some of the attributes of God. God's righteousness and faithfulness and loving kindness and truth. He's not going to let this moment pass without publicly making it known what God has done for him. Okay, So this is David again emphasizing that he is going to declare what God has done. So David's reminding us here that it's good for us to do this. I mentioned earlier that we all have numerous pits that the Lord has faithfully walked with us through and delivered us from. And it's good for us when God rescues us from those pits to make it known publicly. It's so easy when we come through one trial for our minds to immediately focus on the next obstacle, right? We get out of one and we immediately start looking ahead at the next. But David's reminding us it's good in that moment to pause and take a minute to thank God, to make known what the Lord has done for us in that moment. And, and, and by the way, that's in part, that's what we're doing in communion, right? When we celebrate communion as a church, that's us as a church, us as believers pausing to say, I I was in this pit of my sin. I was, I keep thinking of hymns this morning, I was sinking deep in sin far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained in sin, sinking to rise no more. When the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, we were in the pit. We were lost in our sin. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he rescued, he pulled us out of that. And in part, we eat and drink as believers to say thank you as a public testimony that God has rescued us from that. And then here's the the final thing. Number three, I want to see David's plea for God's help. Verses 11 and 12. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let This is the lament part of it now. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me, for innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. Now just pause. So how does David describe this current pit? David says there are innumerable evils and there are iniquities. So where's David looking? Well, he's he's saying there are problems out there. There's evils. But where else are there problems? Where are iniquities? In here. So David is saying we're facing this pit that we're in a fallen world where we're going to run up against evil. And we're in this pit where we deal with despair because we have fallen hearts. And David is wrestling through this iniquity in his life. In fact, he goes on to describe it as if his heart is going to fail. David doesn't know if he can hold up under the pressure of his sin and this evil world. And so he says, verses 13 through 15. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, he's being mocked. He has enemies who are pointing at David going, I told you God won't help you. I told you your faith won't work. And he's asking God to turn it back on his enemies. Then verse 16. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. So he's praying that his enemies will be stopped. But on the other hand, David is praying that all those who seek the Lord 
will be blessed. That they'll rejoice and say, the Lord be magnified. So what David is hoping for here is he wants, he wants the praises of God's people to drown out the taunts of his enemies. This is one of the things that is so helpful and so important about corporate worship. Is I need to hear the praises of God's people drown out the taunts of the enemies. We hear the enemy plenty. But I need to hear God's people reminding me of who God is. I need to hear God's people saying together, let the Lord be magnified. That, that, that's what it's all about. And I need to hear that in my trials. I need to be reminded in my trials that the most important thing in this pit is that God be magnified. Christian, remember, you weren't just saved by God, you were saved for God. And so our, our hope in life is no matter where we are, no matter what pit we find ourselves in, that God would use us in a way in that pit so that He would be magnified in us. And if you can pray that in your trial, if you can make the primary prayer in your trial, Lord, be magnified. Lord, be magnified. If That is an unbelievably liberating thing to be able to pray in a pit. Because it reminds you, it is not about the circumstance. It is not about you. It is about what God chooses to do through you. David prays that, he's he, that he'll hear God's people with that declaration. And then he ends it. Verse 17. But I am poor and needy. Again, I have nothing to claim of God. I have no righteousness to lay before Him. I'm poor and needy. Yet, the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Now, I mentioned a reference earlier. Let me give you another one. Verses, uh, verses 16 of 13 through 17 in Psalm 40 is almost identical to Psalm 70. So don't turn there now, but you might want to write it down. Psalm 70 basically is Psalm 40, verses 13 through 17. And even though Psalm 70 comes later in the Psalter, it's generally believed that Psalm 70 was written before Psalm 40. Okay, Psalm 70 is written first. It's identical to these verses. So think about what that means. That means as David is praying to God and as David is lamenting before God, what does David do to help him pray? David begins quoting another psalm to help him pray in his trial. In other words, David begins to do the very thing that I've been saying we're supposed to do with the Psalms. David begins in God's sovereign inspiration, he begins quoting another Psalm to help him pour out his heart to God as he laments. Take that as a reminder that the Psalms are here for that. The Psalms are here to help us pray. If David used the Psalms to give shape to his prayers, we should do the same. The main difference between Psalm 70 and these verses in Psalm 40 is that one phrase in verse 17. The main difference is the one phrase. This doesn't appear in Psalm 70. Yet, the Lord thinks 
upon me. That's the new thought in Psalm 40. It's like as David considers what God has done for him, as David remembers this horrible pit and this miry clay that God had plucked him out of earlier, as he's facing this current trial, the thought that keeps ringing in David's ears is, yes, the Lord thinks on me. God has, do you know how precious it is to hold on to that Christian? God has not forgotten you. God's thoughts for his people are constant and God's thoughts for his people are good. You are going to run in, maybe now, you're going to run into occasions in your life when your circumstances are going to shout to you, God doesn't care. Your circumstances are going to shout to you, God doesn't see, God doesn't know, God doesn't hear. And David, in this bog, is reminding himself, oh no, God's faults are on his children. He has not forgotten you. And the ultimate proof that he has not forgotten you stands on a hill in outside of Jerusalem where Christ hung to once for all bear the sins of his people. The stake has been nailed into the ground, giving proof positive of God's love for his people, of God's interminably good thoughts for his people, of God's commitment to his people. So Christian, maybe you need to take a few minutes this morning and do like David does in the beginning of this psalm and just let your mind Go back and recount some of the episodes of God's faithfulness in your life. Do you have any pits that the Lord has rescued you from? I know, I know one, if you're a believer, you have. He has pulled you out of the most miserable pit imaginable. Thank God for that and let that be a standing testimony to you of God's faithfulness to you now. He has not forgotten you. So let's prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. I'm going to give you a few minutes to go to the Lord yourself in your seat. Make David's prayer your prayer. Maybe it's just the first few verses. And you need to take a minute and remember what it is that God has graciously plucked you out of. Or maybe, maybe you have been tempted to feel like you've been forgotten. And God's call through David is a reminder of the Lord's good, gracious thoughts that never leave his children. So thank the Lord for his grace. I'll let you pray in your seat and then I'll come close this.